Revelation 22 verses 1 to 5, and we're going to focus on the river of life and what it's going to be like living in the new heavens and the new earth. I'll pray and we'll get going. Father, thank you for a new day, a new opportunity to worship you and to study your word. Pray your Holy Spirit would teach us and lead us into all truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're coming up to the end of the book of Revelation in the last chapter. So before I jump in, I just thought I'd explain where we're up to. So chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation is a church age, which is where we are now. And then I believe the, the next prophetic event is the rapture. So the people who are saved will go up to heaven. And all the people who are not saved will go into the seven-year tribulation. At the end of the seven years, with the Antichrist rules and all that kind of stuff, you have Jesus coming back with us. And we have the thousand-year rule and reign of Jesus Christ in the millennium. And then at the end, there's a final battle when Satan is released. And we have the new heavens and the new earth. And that's where we're at now. So that's a really, really quick summary. We're talking about Revelation 21 and 22, and so we're talking about heaven, the new heavens and the new earth. So last week we started talking about the new Jerusalem in chapter 21, and this week it's Revelation 22 verses 1 to 5, and we're going to focus on the river of life and what it's going to be like living in the new heavens and the new earth. So let's read Revelation 22, 1 to 5. And it says, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, and on either side of the river, was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign for ever and ever. So, This is telling us what it's going to be like inside of this new Jerusalem. Now, remember last week we talked about this and it's going to cover like two-thirds of the land area of Australia. It's about 2,400 kilometers wide, long and high. And so that's basically how big this new Jerusalem is going to be. It's pretty massive. Its walls are made of diamond and and the streets and and its constructions of gold and it's got precious gems as foundations, pearls for the 12 gates the names of the tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles on it. So it's going to be an amazing place. So we're going to continue talking about this new Jerusalem, this city that came down from heaven in verse 1. And it says, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. So this is a glorious river flowing from the throne of God, the Father and of the Lamb. So God the Father and God the Son are reigning together. And 
why a river? What's so important about a river? Well, in the scriptures, it's always used as a powerful expression of richness, provision, and peace. And a couple of examples are Isaiah forty-eight eighteen. Oh, that you had listened to my commands, then you would have had peace flowing like a gentle river, and righteousness rolling over you like waves in the sea. And Psalm 46, 4 and 5, There is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her, she shall not be moved. God shall help her just at the break of dawn. And this water is clear as crystal, and so we haven't seen a river like this on this earth, but this heavenly river is going to be absolutely pure and more beautiful than we've ever seen, anything we've ever seen on this earth. And the source of this river is from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It comes right from God. Now, where does life come from? Who is the source of life? It's God, right? So, this is the river of water of life. And so it must come from God. God is the source of all life. So this river comes from God. Now, just going back into the millennial reign of Jesus a thousand years, Ezekiel saw another river at this time in prophecy is not existent anymore because the old earth and heavens have been destroyed. But basically, this river flowed from the temple, half went to the Mediterranean, half went to the Dead Sea, and the waters, as it hit the Dead Sea, it caused it to come alive. It healed it, dealt with a salt problem, and there's fish everywhere. And basically, this is a picture of a river bringing physical life to the Dead Sea. And so... In the New Jerusalem, we have a better river with better trees because here the river is described as a pure river of water of life. It brings spiritual life as opposed to just physical life as it was in the millennium. And an application here, what this tells us is that in heaven there's going to be no lack or want of anything that can bring us joy. And an example, John 4, 13-14, Jesus replied, talking to the woman at the well. Anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again, but those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. So, why is heaven so good? Because eternal contentment and satisfaction will be ours forever. Our intimate relationship with God will meet our every need. That's the time when we truly understand that when I have God, I will have everything that I need. And a couple of verses there which are really encouraging are Psalm 16 verse 11. It says, You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And Psalm 62, 2-5. So I have looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise you. Thus I will bless you while I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise you with joyful lips. So what are we going to be doing in heaven? Praising God with joyful lips, yeah? 
lifting up your hands in your name, blessing God for all that he has done for us. Because your loving kindness is better than life. So we're going to be in the physical presence, the intimate presence of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in this new Jerusalem, this beautiful city that God has prepared for us. Now, it says, From the throne of God and of the Lamb. Revelation 21, 3 and 4 says, Behold, the tabernacle of God, that is God the Father, is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And I was thinking about this, because it says, From the throne of God and of the Lamb, he's dwelling with us. So, where is the Holy Spirit? Well, we read down a bit, and in verse 17, we have, And the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let he who hears say, Come. And let him who thirsts, Come. Whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. So, where is the Spirit? Well, the Spirit and the Bride. Who's the Bride? The Church, yeah. So, the Spirit is still with the Church. We have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all with us, dwelling with us in heaven. So here it's picturing the Spirit as being with the Bride. So it's intimate connection between us and God. And going on to verse 2, it says, In the middle of its street and on the other side of the river was a tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So, getting the big picture now, right? It's a bit of a story time here, okay? We know back in Genesis that there were two trees, right? The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Man chose to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and chose to not eat from the tree of life. That was a pretty dumb decision. But now we have the tree of life again, and it points to the restoration of all things. So the three trees in history, which are really important, which tell the story of the gospel, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and then we have the cross, which is referred to as a tree. Galatians, we'll read it in a minute. Galatians says, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. That means to be crucified. And then we also have the tree of life. So the three trees. So what does the tree of the knowledge of good and evil represent? Well, it represents man's decision to rebel against God and become independent of God. So Adam and Eve, back in the garden, they rejected the tree of life. They rejected God's provision and they wanted to be independent of God. So we just read, Genesis three twenty two and 24. Then the Lord God said, Look, the human beings have become like us. Again, a picture of the Trinity there. Knowing both good and evil, what if they reach out, take fruit from the tree of life and eat it? Then they will live forever. So the Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden, and he sent Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he had been made. After sending them out, the Lord stationed mighty cherubim to the east of the Garden of Eden, and he placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth 
to guard the way to the tree of life. So what did sin do? Well, it resulted in the world being cursed. And it also resulted in God barring man from eating from the tree of life. Now, why didn't God want man to eat from the tree of life once he had already eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Well, it says in here, what does the verse say? What if they reach out, take fruit from the tree of life and eat it? Then they will live forever. Why didn't God want us to live forever once we were sinners? We'd be locked into our choice, wouldn't we? Yeah. We would all be eternal sinners, living eternally in a sinful body, separated from God forever. So it would mean living forever in these sin-cursed bodies, bodies with a sin nature attached. Now, for me, I can't wait (laughs) to be free from this body of sin with my sin nature. Romans 8.23 describes it as being released from sin and suffering. And we start to understand that it's better that we die because then we can be risen again with a new body, with a new nature. And that's God's plan. And as we just mentioned, the fact that unbelievers' hearts only get harder as they get older. So for the unbeliever, a longer life simply means a harder heart, which means a more miserable life and a more evil world as we get harder and harder towards God if we're an unbeliever. So the second tree, the cross, it represents Jesus' suffering, the consequences of sin and the curse on our behalf, thereby making relationship with God possible again. So the first tree brought on the curse It was the cause of the curse. Sin was the cause of the curse. It represents that. But here the second tree represents the taking away of the curse. So Galatians 3, 13 and 14 it says, But Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. When he was hung on the cross, he took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing. For it is written in the scriptures, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Through Jesus Christ, God has blessed the Gentiles with the same blessing he promised to Abraham so that we who are believers might receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith. So what is the curse? Well, the curse includes the penalty of sin. That's death. The power of sin, which is the bondage to sin, and the presence of sin is our sinful nature in this body. And Jesus frees us from all aspects of the curse. So first of all, we are justified. We are freed from the penalty of sin. That's a done deal. It happens the day you're saved, right? The moment you're saved. We receive that forgiveness, that payment for our sins. Then we are being sanctified. It starts when we are first saved and it finishes when our spirit and soul leave this body. We are freed from the power of sin. We are transformed. And then we will be glorified, and that is to be freed from the presence of sin, no longer in this body with this sinful nature, and we get a brand new body. So the tree of life 
represents eternal life, a forever relationship with God free from the curse. And through the cross, mankind has been restored to relationship with God and now has access once again to the tree of life. So this is not something that's a universal thing. It's provided for everybody, but it must be accepted individually. And the question I want to ask now is, why is renewed or restored man better than created or innocent man? Another way of asking it is, why is renewed or restored man better than created or innocent man? Why are we better off now having been redeemed from the penalty, power and presence of sin rather than never having sinned in the first place? So what's the point? What's the benefit of going through all the pain and suffering? Why is the story of the three trees necessary? I quote from David Guzek, he says, Our instinct is to romantically consider innocence as man's perfect state and wish Adam would have never done what he did. But we fail to realize that redeemed man is greater than innocent man, that we gain more in Jesus than we ever lost in Adam. God's perfect state is one of redemption, not innocence. And the answer is, why is it so much better? It's Revelation chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. It says, To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. So the key here is that God, Jesus, has made us kings and priests to God, his God and Father. So this is the status that we receive as believers. And it's through the work of the cross, those who are washed in his own blood. And another quote from David Guzik on this, It would have been enough just to love them and cleanse them, but he goes far beyond and makes us kings and priests to his God and Father. This is more than Adam ever was. Even in the innocence of Eden, we never read of Adam among the kings and priests of God. This is worth praising Jesus about. So we have more now than we did before. So what does it mean to be a king? Well, we are God's royalty. This gives us privilege, status and authority. And being priests means we are God's special servants. We represent God to man and man to God. Hebrews 13.15 tells us we offer the sacrifice of praise to God. And Romans 5.1 and 2 says we have privileged access into God's presence. So what does it all mean? To sum it up, under the new covenant, because we are redeemed and not just created, we can be like Jesus in the sense that he is both king and high priest. So we're not high priest, but we are priests in his kingdom. So nothing with the Lord is in vain. Now back to Revelation 22 verse 2. It says, In the middle of the street and on either side of the river was a tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Now, if you go to the original language, it's really quite confusing to imagine what's going on here. Because... The river is flowing down the middle, but where's the tree? Is it in the middle or is it on the sides? How many trees are there or is it just one? <laughs> so I'm going to give you two people's views on this and you can make up your own mind. 
So John Valvord, he looks at it this way. He says, The visual picture presented is that the river of life flows through the middle of the city and the tree is large enough to span the river so that the river is in the middle of the street and the tree is on both sides of the river. So that's one way of looking at it. Others, like Spurgeon, see the word tree as a collective reference, speaking of rows of trees that stand on either side of the river. And he says, The picture presented in the mind's eye would appear to be that of a wide street, with a river flowing down the centre with trees growing on either side, all of them of the same kind, all called the tree of life. I do not know how we can make the figure out in any other way. <laughs> so there you go. There's a confusion about exactly where this tree is going to be, but putting all that aside, when we get there, there's going to be a beautiful river flowing down the middle of the street, and there's going to be the tree of life. So, and it's going to be awesome. And each tree, there's a bit of a hint there, each tree yielding its fruit every month. So I tend to go with Spurgeon's view because here it indicates there's more than one tree. So the context here shows that we are in the new heavens and new earth in eternity, right? But it says every month. So again, there's things we don't know about the eternity, with things we don't know about heaven. Yeah. So every month there's going to be new fruit, a different type of fruit maybe. At the same time though, we're not going to be getting old. And time in one way will be non-existent, but in another way it will still be measuring time. So that's interesting. So what will we eat in heaven? Or will we eat in heaven? Well, I believe that we can eat, but we won't have to eat. So in our new bodies, we don't have to eat, but we can still enjoy food. Now, for me, I do enjoy my food, probably too much. <laughs> and yeah, so I think God has given us food to enjoy as a, it's just a pleasure thing, really. So a couple of examples of Jesus in his glorified body eating food. I'll just read them to you. It's, the first one is from Luke 24, and this is Jesus going to the upper room after he had resurrected. The disciples are hiding away or scared because they didn't believe that Jesus had actually resurrected. So here it goes. Now, as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold, my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. So Jesus in his glorified body is a physical body you can touch and feel, and he still has his scars. So when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they still did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, Have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it and ate in their presence. So Jesus in his glorified body could enjoy food. So will we, because we'll have the same kind of glorified body. John 21, 12-14. This is when 
Jesus goes to the Lake of Galilee, Sea of Galilee, and makes breakfast for them, and then they come in, and then Jesus talks to Peter and says, Feed my sheep. So Jesus said to them, Come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus then came and took the bread and gave it to them, and likewise the fish. This is now the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. So, what about angels? Can angels eat food? Well, this is not really relevant, but it's still interesting. Genesis 18, 6-8. What do the angels do with Jesus? Jesus and two angels, they ate Abraham's meal. So, even angels can enjoy food. Now, the marriage supper of the Lamb, Revelation 19, verse 9. This happens at the start of the thousand-year millennial reign not up in heaven, as far as I can tell. From the book of Revelation, the timeline is we are with Jesus for the seven years and we come back and then there's this great marriage supper of the Lamb. A great time of joy and feasting. And this happens, as I said, at the start of the thousand-year rule and reign of Jesus Christ. And we call that the millennial reign. And there's a reference to this in Isaiah 25, verse 6. In Jerusalem... The Lord of heaven's armies will spread a wonderful feast for all the people of the world. It will be a delicious banquet with clear, well-aged wine and choice meat. So, basically, in our glorified bodies, we'll be enjoying this. It's going to be a delicious banquet. So, the food that God is going to prepare for us is going to be beyond anything that we can enjoy down here. And it says in verse 2 also, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Now, why do the nations need healing? You might ask, if this is a perfect world and there's no more death, suffering, tears, or crying. Well, the word in the Greek can also mean health giving. I've got a quote from Valvoid here. He says, the word for healing is therapian from which the English word therapeutic is derived, almost directly transliterated from the Greek. Rather than meaning healing, it should be understood as health-giving, as the word in its root meaning has the idea of serving or ministering. So that hopefully answers that question for you. And in verses 3 to 5, we'll just read them together. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. So we are the servants serving him here. Okay, It's talking about us. And of course, all the other believers who have ever lived. So now we're going to look into what it's going to be like for us living in the new heavens and new earth and what we're going to be doing there. So most importantly, in verse 3, there is no more curse. Yes, the curse is gone. So since the fall, man and creation have lived with the effect of the curse as described in Genesis three sixteen to 19. And you know all about that. I feel sorry for the women with the pain in childbirth the problems in marriage, 
Did you realize that's part of the curse too? Remember that, how it goes? The woman wants to manipulate the man. The desire is for her husband, meaning to control, to manipulate. The man wants to dominate the woman. That's basically the basics of the curse in marriage. And if you recognize that, then you can deal with it. You can recognize, ah, the husband, we go, yeah, here I am being authoritarian again. <laughs> and the woman possibly might say, oh, yeah, here I am trying to change him, you know, trying to get what I want through manipulation. So, of course, it can be the other way around as well. But most of the time, that's generally the way it is. That's what the Bible says. So that's part of the curse. And hard work, hard, futile, vain work, where it's just a waste of time. You think, why am I doing this? Because it's going to break again, or it's going to, you know, all these weeds I have to kill, all that kind of stuff. And it's like, uh, you know, yes, we can enjoy our work, but there's a whole lot of work we do now that we won't have to do. There'll be no roundup in heaven. <laughs> and of course, there'll be no more death. Now, in the millennium, again going back to the thousand-year millennium, most of the effects of the curse will be negated because of Jesus' presence on the earth. But there still be some people will still be dying. It says that the sinners shall be accursed. And that means dead. But in the new heavens and the new earth, sickness, sadness, crying are done away with forever. And what replaces the curse? Well, it's the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it. And I just want to read Galatians 3, 13 and 14 again, because it's so powerful. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So, no more curse. Why? Again, it's obvious, but we just want to remind us that it's because of what Jesus did. Throne of God and of the Lamb. And good quote from Spurgeon here. I couldn't resist putting this in. Henceforth, eternal praises to his name. The throne of God is the throne of the Lamb. It is a throne of righteousness, but no less a throne of grace. There, on the throne of the Almighty, mercy reigns. According to the merit of the sacrifice and the virtue of the atonement, all the statutes and decrees of the kingdom of heaven are issued. The altar and the throne have become identical. From that throne, no fiery bolt can ever again be hurled against the believer. For it is a throne of the Lamb as well as a throne of God, that is the Father. In verse 3 it also says, His servants shall serve him. So we are his servants. We're described as his servants. Yes, we are kings and priests, but we are also servants. So heaven will be a place of work and service for God's people. But, as I said before, no more vain work, no more wasted work. Okay, We are going to only be doing work which is going to be enjoyable and satisfying it's going to be like 
you know, have a made with certain desires and certain gifts and talents, God's going to put us in a role where we're going to be perfectly suited and we're going to just flourish in whatever he's going to call us to do. And I'm just going to read Genesis 3, 17 to 19 to show us what it used to, what it is like and then we can compare it to what it will be like. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is a ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. By thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. So instead of that, instead of labor and toil, we will find rest for our souls. Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30 says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lonely in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So it's not the direct context of working in heaven. When we're doing things for the Lord, it's not going to feel heavy. It's going to feel like it's enjoyable. And Leon Morris puts it this way, Heaven is not a place of indolent leisure, but a place where service is done, centering on God. So again, work in heaven will be satisfying and enjoyable. We're not going to be sitting around on clouds playing harps all day. We'll actually be doing something. Verse 4, this is important. They shall see his face. Heaven is a place where God's people will see his face. It's a place of intimate, face-to-face worship or fellowship with God. Now, I want to just go back to the Old Testament. What about Moses? Could he see the face of God? No. Moses was denied the privilege of seeing God face-to-face. And we'll read that in Exodus 33, verse 20 in a minute. But everyone in heaven shall see his face. Now, why the difference? Moses was faithful. Moses could talk face to face, as in have direct answers from God, but not physically face to face. The answer is because of the work of Jesus on the cross, paying the penalty for our sins. So what I'm getting at here is, going back to the cross and showing that it's because of what Jesus did on the cross that we can now be in the direct physical presence of God. Without a sin debt being paid by Jesus, none of us would ever have access to God. None of us will be able to see his face. So Exodus 33.20 it says, But he said, You cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. Why? Because we're sinful. We would be destroyed because we're sinful. The sin in us would cause us to be destroyed by God's glory, his goodness. And the Lord said, Here is a place by me, and you shall stand on the rock. And so it shall be, while my glory passes by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So there's an awesome picture here of our salvation. Who is the rock? It's Jesus, right? 
We are put in the cleft of the rock. Okay, We are covered. And then he passes by. And for me, it's like a picture of judgment. God the Father pours out his judgment on God the Son. And where are we? We're hidden in Christ. And then he takes his hand away after the judgment has passed and we're safe. So we're protected from judgment. So that's the main thing here. And the hymn, Rock of Ages, Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. So because we're hidden in Christ, we're safe from God's wrath. And another quote from Spurgeon, by which I understand two things. First, that they shall literally and physically with their risen bodies actually look into the face of Jesus. And secondly, that spiritually their mental faculties shall be enlarged so that they shall be enabled to look into the very heart and soul and character of Christ. So as to understand him, his work, his love, his all in all, as they never understood him before. Awesome, hey? Our mental faculties enlarged, so not just to see him, but to understand him. As the scriptures say, to know him as we are known. But what about now? We can know something of the intimate presence of God right now. Second Corinthians 4, 6. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So we get a glimpse, right? Because in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, it says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am also known. In that day, there will be nothing that obscures our vision of Jesus. We'll be perfect and glorified. So I'm looking forward to that. Heaven, the greatest part about heaven is being in the physical presence of God. That's great. But having the, with this new body and being free from this sinful nature, having the ability to relate to God on an almost equal level is just mind-boggling. To know him as he knows us. I think about that and I just can't think about it anymore. So, <laughs> you know, he knows every hair in my head. He knows every thought. What does it mean for me thinking, knowing about God, you know? That's how intimate the relationship's going to be. And another quote from Spurgeon. It is the chief blessing of heaven, the cream of heaven, the heaven of heaven, that the saints shall see Jesus. Spurgeon also says, To look into the face of Christ signifies to be well acquainted with his person, his office, his character, his work. So the saints in heaven shall have more knowledge of Christ than the most advanced below. As one has said, the babe in Christ admitted to heaven discovers more of Christ in a single hour than is known by all the divines of the assemblies of the church on earth. <laughs> so he put together all the people who know God and in one minute even a baby in Christ, a young Christian, will know more about God than all those people combined because they're now in his physical presence and have a body and mind they can understand and see and comprehend. So just trying to help you understand that there's going to be a massive change when we get there.
when we get to be in the presence of God. Verse 4, it says, His name shall be in their foreheads. What does this mean? Well, our identification is that we belong to God. That's it. When something is yours, you put your name on it, right? So we belong to God. We're identified as belonging to Him. And there shall be no more night there, no more darkness, and guess what? No more sun either. It's the glory of God that lights up the whole place, the whole earth. And they shall reign forever and ever. So heaven will be a place where God, God's people enjoy an eternal reign in contrast to the millennium where it only lasted a thousand years. So eternal reign. They shall reign forever and ever. And I've mentioned before in another message that those words forever and ever, you can't be more clear in the Greek that it's eternity. Now the big picture, a quote from David Guzik, as the Bible opens with the story of paradise lost, so here it closes with the story of paradise regained. We see the return of paradise in the ideas of a river, a tree of life, revocation of the curse, intimacy restored, and reigning resumed. It's a perfect consummation. So, summary, no more curse means perfect restoration. The throne in their midst means perfect administration. Servants shall serve means perfect subordination. See his face means a perfect transformation. We are transformed into his image. Name on foreheads means a perfect identification. We belong to him. God is the light means perfect illumination. And you can apply that to mean understanding. And reigning forever is perfect exaltation. So, whatever we are now, sinful as we are, God is going to lift us up and we will reign with him. So, Father, I just thank you for these beautiful verses, Lord. We're just contemplating heaven, thinking about heaven. Lord, it's just going to be absolutely mind-bogglingly uncomprehendable is really all I can say. So I just pray that you help us to meditate on these things and to realize that there is something really, really good waiting for us. And Lord, it really is worth giving up the old life to enjoy the new because the rewards are so worth it and what you have for us is so awesome. And Romans 8, 18, for the suffering that we go through now is nothing compared to the glory that we will receive later. For the suffering that we go through now, or that we endure now, is nothing compared to the glory we will receive later. So, Father, thank you for the promises in your word, and thank you that you have invited us to be kings and priests with you and reign with you forever and ever. Amen.